Hello. Welcome to the Beatles Books podcast with me, Joe Wisby. Today, I'm delighted to welcome David Hepworth back to the podcast, this time to discuss his new book on Abbey Road Studios. David is a renowned author and journalist, so he's perfectly placed to look into the history and influence of the most famous recording studios in the world. He reveals the history of the building, how Abbey Road was seen before the Beatles recorded there, how it changed and affected their music, and why every single day a certain zebra crossing is full of camera-snapping tourists. David Hetworth, hello. Welcome back to the Beatles Books Podcast. How are you? I'm fine. It's a pleasure to be back. We're here to talk about your excellent new book on a certain recording studios that will be forever associated with the Beatles, and that is, of course, Abbey Road. Uh, the book is subtitled The Inside Story of the World's Most Famous Recording Studio, which it absolutely is. How did this project first come about? What inspired you to write about these famous old studios? It came about through my publisher, frankly. I was working on something else. Bill Scott Kerr, my publisher, said he was keen to do an Abbey Road book, and they were keen to do an Abbey Road book to mark the 90th anniversary of the studio opening in 1931. I, I just wanted to do it, really, uh, and it was there to do, and uh, that, that's why I did it, really, as simple as that. One of the areas that your book's really strong on is an area that probably a lot of Beatles fans aren't aware of, and that's the, the real history of the studios themselves. So tell us a little bit about how this building, number three, Abbey Road, first came to be a recording studio. Well, it came to be because EMI came to be uh, by the combination of, of two companies, Electrical and Musical Industries, one foot in the technical camp and one foot in the entertainment camp. Well, I think that's a very important part of his heritage. And it was just the idea that, you know, we, we're fed up of recording in kind of places that we managed to rent for short periods of time, which is amazing. If you look at the really early history of recording, very often the recording machinery, which in most cases was huge and heavy and unwieldy, in most cases it found its way to the performers rather than the performers finding its way to the, to the equipment. But it was decided that, no, they ought to have a palace of recording uh, commensurate with their status as, as a great kind of empire industry. Uh, and that they ought to go and look for a place. And they found this place in uh, number three, uh, Abbey Road, St. John's Wood. And they was chosen because it was a, a nice, decent-sized villa, but also had a garden at the back big enough for them to build what is still there to this day which is Studio One, which is, you know, the, the huge, great studio. It's like a concert hall uh, meant to accommodate a classical orchestra. So it opened in 1931, and, you know, it's on the newsreels. You can see it on YouTube. The opening act, if you can use that expression, is Sir Edward Elgar <laughs> and a symphony orchestra playing, uh, you know, uh, Land of Home and Glory, Pomp and Circumstance. You know, it was always started as a classical studio. That was the main thrust 
of what they did. But they had three they had three studios within that complex. Because it is a bit of a TARDIS when you go inside to this day. So you have number one studio, which is the big orchestral studio. Number three studio, which is the small recitals, um, somebody playing the piano and so forth. And then number two, which was developed really for dance bands. Uh, you know, so that's where you would find Al Bowley and you know, Ray Noble and so forth in the 1930s. And number two became the kind of rock and roll studio when rock and roll came along. And so they've added various bits in in the in the years since. You know, they knock it about a bit in in response to the change of technology. They change the configuration a bit, but broadly, that's still how it functions to this day. So were they a, a success straight away? Were they attracting big artists initially? Well, they, it was pretty much they got the artists who were signed to them because they, you have to remember at that time there was no option really. If, you know, if you were signed, if you assigned to EMI or, or as Noel Coward referred to them, HMV, um, you know, you recorded in their studios. You know, they had the big companies and there were, you know, there were EMI, there was Decca around the corner in Broadhurst Gardens in, in West Hampstead. That was pretty much it. And uh, so if you wanted to make a record, you had to go to the few people who had the machinery. You know, they had the train set at a time when nobody else could afford a train set. And this is something that I think is very hard for people to get their heads around, particularly nowadays, when absolutely every, when you've probably got more recording equipment in your attic there than would have been available to the whole of the UK and US record industry in the 1930s, you know, so the big uh, conductors, the Thomas Beecham's and uh, and uh, Malcolm Sargent's, it was the great palace of recording. It was wherever everybody wanted to be, and particularly those people who, who were um, who had a recording arrangement with EMI. And then you started getting you got you got the pop acts. As I've said, you got you know the uh, the dance bands. You know would be in there absolutely all the time. They would do uh, cast recordings of West End musicals. And so those were always done on a Sunday because that was the only time that the, the, the theatres were were dark. They could come into the studio and do the whole thing. And on Sunday recordings, that's when EMI, being a rather formal organisation, relaxed its rule, meaning that the engineers did not have to wear suits. They can actually wear sports jackets and flannels. Uh, you know, so there was still an eye to decorum. But, you know... One of the, the the interesting things about this story to me is EMI was, you know, throughout most of its history, a, a kind of fairly stuffy company, quite backward looking, quite slow to embrace technology at a kind of a, at, a, at a high level. You know, they were not in a hurry to do stereo. They were not in a hurry to do the 7-inch 45. They were not in a hurry to do the the 12-inch LP, <laughs> they all felt these things, oh, flash in the pan, they'll go away. But nonetheless, they also managed to pioneer a great deal of innovation, which is very often just done by the engineers being the kind of boffins who just did stuff and were just 
looking for a challenge, you know. So stereo effectively was invented at Abbey Road in the in the mid thirties by Alan Blumline. You know, it was never really put into uh, into commercial use. And then the war came along, and Alan Blumline he was involved in war work, which and he sadly died. They did all those things, but whether they necessarily brought them to market as quick as they might, I'm not so sure. But I think so many of the artists who recorded there in the 60s, 70s and 80s, they really valued the kind of the stuffiness of the place, actually, in a way mm. that they always there was always some bloke called Reg who would turn up and save your ass you know what i mean because you got increasingly over the years you know we're talking about the 60s and 70s you got some of the most adventurous recording acts turned up there who were doing things with no idea whether they would ever work out or not mm. and very often the people who who made them work were really you know not people like them at all they were not hipsters abbey road was never a hipster studio that's been a really good thing over a long period of time because hipster studios uh, have come and gone. Mm. Yeah, Abbey Road is still there. Yeah, started as effectively the first proper recording studio in the world, and you could say ninety years later is effectively the last. So, as most listeners will know, the story in your book changes in nineteen sixty-two when. The Beatles first set foot into Abbey Road and they never really left, as we know, uh, up until 1969. What kind of contribution do you think Abbey Road and the staff of Abbey Road made to those early, really thrilling Beatles recordings? I think probably a lot more than we realise. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a tendency to to listen to those early records and think, oh, that's just the raw energy of a group just tumbled out the back of their van in the car park, mm. come from Liverpool. They just set up and played. It can't have been as simple as that because I write quite, I focus quite a bit in the book on the record that I think is the, the kind of turning point, which is twist and shout. The thing that made the difference was they were great songwriters. I don't think that was really. I think the thing that made them difference, different was the amount of their personality they could put into something. And that applied just as much to Twist and Shout that they didn't write as it does to She Loves You that they did. I think Twist and Shout is actually, and I, I, I saw standing there, those are the first two great records they make. I don't think Love Me Do is all that great a record, you know. Mm. I don't even think Please Please Me is all that great a record. I'm not thrilled by From Me to You. It starts taking off immediately after that. And I think the kind of pivotal record is Twist and Shout, which they do at the end of the, the day, the day allotted to do their first LP. And then they sort of ran out of time, really. And so they had to stay late and do one more song. And Alan Smith, who was the editor of The Enemy, who was a Liverpudlian and knew them, who was there said to them, why do you do that song that, that, that you do that sounds like La Bamba? And they said, what's that? So he sang about it. And they said, oh, Twist and Shout. And so they go in there and they do two takes, I think, Twist and Shout. And I don't know what it is, you know, but you have to credit the engineer, Norman Smith, because 
nothing as exciting as that had ever been recorded in a UK studio. Mm. And you can talk about Cliff Richard and move it, and you can talk about Johnny Kidd and the Pirates. You can go and listen. Go and listen to those records now. Go and listen to Twist and Shout. Mm. Twist and Shout unbelievably vibrant you can hear the the crackle of the air in that studio as that is being recorded and norman smith always says that he wanted to to give them a kind of live sound so you can almost hear them but you can also hear the excitement of a performance going on there you know the two things are working together and if you listen to the first, all those great records that came after She Loves You, I Want All Yarn particularly, I think that what made them remarkable was that they were having such success at the time. They were thrilled and elated and giddy. And that elation comes through in the way that they play. And nobody, don't forget, had done that before. You hadn't had a really strong vocal group with a really strong instrumental group with an incredible sense of arrangement. You just hadn't had that triple threat before. And so that was what was captured. And also they were massively fortunate that they blundered into George Martin rather than Norrie Paramore or anybody else or Norman Newell or whatever. Because whatever it was, George Martin, my personal theory, is George Martin's first great records were the, the Peter Sellers comedy records, which had, you know, an immense sense of, sense of place about them, those records. He could conjure an atmosphere without benefit of a studio audience or anything like that. Suddenly you're, you know, you're in a boarding school or you're in a square in Streatham or you're, you're wherever. He's just painted that picture. And I think that kind of um, his skill in that kind of English whimsy was immensely important when it came later on. But I think even early on, he recognised that a great record needed a certain, a certain finesse to it that made you want to listen to it again and again and again, which I don't think anybody felt about Cliff Richard's records. You might like them. Mm. But you don't think, oh, let me just listen to Bachelor Boy one more time. You know, because it doesn't, there's nothing revealed in that record at all. It's only relatively recently I discovered that there are bongos on a hard day's night. And once you know that there are bongos on a hard day's night, you think, my God, yes, there are bongos on a hard day's night. And that's what adds to that incredible sense of impetus and excitement and surge mm. and that's that's george martin that's george martin listening to them and going this is really good but i'll tell you what <laughs> just this little touch might make a difference and so many of the beatles records are so much a question of just a little touch just a little touch and particularly when you get later on he was the man who was the bridge between them george martin this is who was the bridge between the traditional way you might record a, a beat group, as they were called at the time, and a broader palette of things you could involve that came from the other side of Abbey Road. You know, if you want a piccolo trumpet, I can get a man who can bring, bring along a piccolo trumpet. No, I can take Paul's, 
you know, la-la-las, I can turn those into on a manuscript paper into something that means something to David Meisten, and he's going to play it, and we're going to record it. That wouldn't have happened in any other studio in the world, mm. and it probably wouldn't have happened with anybody other than George Martin. So they were incredibly fortunate. But also, I think it was because it was a big old studio out in St. John's Wood with security around it, they could disappear into it to work. So during the madness of Beatlemania, it was a refuge. It was, we'll go in there and we can just get on with it. We can have a laugh, you know, we can go to the canteen and so forth. We don't need to be surrounded by muscle. And... Uh, it, you know, they they would have had to have gone in a place like that. So it it just kind of worked for them. And then Paul bought a house around the corner because he spent so much time there, which he still got to this day. And um, it just absolutely worked for them. And, of course, in doing so, it utterly revolutionised EMI and, and the culture of Abbey Road at the same time. What's interesting is you, you write in the book quite a lot about the Hollies, there's a, a large chunk of the Hollies, which I think is interesting. I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge Hollies fan. How did they approach and they and other groups approach Abbey Road differently to the Beatles? Was there a marked difference there? I think there was. And the difference was that they didn't have George Martin. Although, to be fair, you know, Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas had George Martin, but it didn't, didn't make them produce loads of masterpieces. <laughs> the Hollies, a fantastic group. Mm instrumentally brilliant vocally brilliant just like the beatles slightly less kind of earthed in their sound so much of the hollies owed a lot kind of american pop music of the 50s i think you know whereas the beatles always had that strong sense of r&b in everything they did but the hollies ended up being produced by ron richards and don't knock Ron Richards, because he, he produced, you know, I Can't Let Go, you know, I'm Alive, Bus Stop, Look Through Any Window, King My Destiny in Reverse, no end of a really great, huge chart records. But he was not a person who wished to spend a moment longer in the studio than he had to. He just kind of wasn't bothered. The memories of, of, of Bobby Elliott and Tony Hicks, which are quoted in the book, uh, that Ron really had his eye on the pub opening time at the end of the evening. Oh, sorry, we're not hanging about for half an hour to put bongos on, on this, you know. We've got to do it, you know. It, it's sort of, the difference is, I suppose, that George Martin made records that were slightly better than they needed to be. And I don't think Ron Richards did. I think he made, he made records that were good enough absolutely good and they're fantastic records but it never kind of accumulated it never added up to anything and they never made an lp because you know they didn't write enough of their own songs you know for it to make sense and when they did they always felt as if they were kind of catching up with trends that somebody else had started you know oh sitars records oh we'll have that rather than originating them you know that they um they were really good and uh, and listen a fantastic live group i saw them, i saw them twice in the 60s and they were if anything better than the beatles as a live group they really could sing and they really could play but they just didn't have that kind of forgive me x factor it would have been interesting to see how they might have turned out if george martin had been 
had been their producer, but George Martin, there probably wasn't enough love in the world for for George Martin to put the amount he needed to put it into the Beatles and simultaneously put it into all those other people as well. Because whatever he put into the Beatles, he got back from them mm. in terms of creativity. Where well, I don't think you'd say the same about Jerry and the Pacemaker. No disrespect to Jerry and the Pacemakers whatsoever. Um, as we know, the Beatles start to use Abbey Road differently as they go on through to record Revolver and Sergeant Pepper. Um, and uh, as you say, you, you struggle to imagine them recording either of those two albums anywhere else. Um, did writing the book give you a bit of more of an insight into how they used Abbey Road through the 60s? The interesting break point is, you know, the, during the early part of the 60s, they used it on the run. It was kind of, you know, we're touring, we're going to Japan, we're doing this, we're doing that. You need to record a single, okay, that's a day. You need to record an LP, okay, well, you know, give me four days or whatever. And then, you know, post-Candlestick Park in 1966, they decide that's the end of that. And so they take a, quite, a, quite a long holiday by standards at the time. And then they all came back, and I do think it's fascinating that they all came back with moustaches. I've always saying this to my to my agent, I'd love to write a book about hair in rock and roll because hair in rock and roll is the most important thing, actually. Seriously, it is the most important thing. And the Beatles magically all grew moustaches without consulting each other, they just did it. And a moustache is a statement particularly at the time. And the statement was, please stop screaming at us. Because I hold, you may be able to find exceptions, but there are no mustachioed pop stars that people scream at. Doesn't happen. Mm. Pop stars are a kind of younger, scream idols are a kind of younger concept. The mustache suggests serious artists. And so the studio becomes that kind of workshop rather than the place where they have to go in and, right, you're going to do Hard Day's Night this morning. I don't know, the famous day when Paul McCartney did I'm Down yesterday and I've just seen a face in a day. <laughs> no more of that. And so they were, you know, the first thing they said was there's going to be no LP this Christmas. So there they're working there in, you know, October, November, thinking, well, we, you know, we can take our time. And EMI were largely happy for them to take their time. It was only Brian Epstein that said, I'm a bit, bit worried about the monkeys. They appear to be stealing your thunder. And so consequently, that oh, have you got anything we can put out? Oh, yes, this is a song called Strawberry Fields Forever. And so they were working in a, in a, in a slower way, albeit a way that would appear to be most to do most groups today to be at almost warp speed compared in 1966, that was slow. Mm -hmm. And so they were setting off to do things without really an idea of how it was going to turn out. I think when they made Hard Day's Night, no, I will say Hard Day's Night because it's their masterpiece, they kind of knew what, they were, what it was going to sound like mm. before they did it. Whereas when you were doing a Penny Lane and a Strawberry Fields Forever, you really didn't. You were just starting with something, and then you were thinking, let's see how it goes. And we're the Beatles. We can do what we like. Nobody's going to you know, give us a hard time. So that kind of weirdness, you know, the, the kind of Heath Robinson aspect of the thing became a huge part of its charm. 
Penny Lane again, you know. They had it all done. It had taken ages. And then at the last minute, they just about to finish it. And Paul sees a performance of the Brandenburg Concertos. And he's struck by a piccolo trumpet. Comes in and says, Sir George Martin, I saw a piccolo trumpet last night. That would be good on this. <laughs> and so George Martin, being George Martin, goes, well, I know that is a David Mason. He's the world's greatest <laughs> trumpet player. Do you want him? Yeah, he can be here tomorrow, whatever. It gets him along and writes it out and he plays it. And you can't imagine Penny Lane without it. You just can't. Um, it would no doubt have existed without it. But, you know, these are records that, unlike Cliff Richard's Bachelor Boy, we have listened to innumerable times and will listen to for as long as we're spared. You know, those were, I do think, unique products of Abbey Road. I can't imagine Olympic Studios, great studio, great engineers, though it is. You know, the great thing about what the Beatles did in that, in that period, it was kind of the Ministry of Music, Abbey Road. It was like working at the BBC. They took great advantage of that, mediated by George Martin. So the thing is, you know, Sergeant Pepper and so forth, you couldn't imagine them anywhere else other than Abbey Road. I mentioned him earlier there, Ken Townsend, who appears quite heavily in the book. Tell us a little bit about, about him. Uh, as you say, he was involved with the Beatles, but tell us about how his kind of role at Abbey Road kind of changed the face of Abbey Road, really. Well, he did eventually because, you know, Ken started pretty much the same time as George Martin. Uh, and Ken's still with us. And he started in uh, in what they called the Amp Room. And they were the guys who set up studios for sessions, you know. So the, the engineers would say, all right, we've got a three-piece group or, or whatever, and a singer. And so there's a little drawing of where we want the drum kit to go and, you know, how many mics we need. And so Ken was, belonged to the, um, you know, the group who did that kind of thing and came up through the company working with pop groups, working with classical musicians, working with soundtracks, working with everything, which is gave him immense experience. Also, I think socially, Ken, I think it was really important. I think the, I think the Abbey Road success was built by grammar school boys. <laughs> they were guys who knew how to talk to people. Mm -hmm. So they weren't quite officer class, and they weren't quite horny-handed sons of toil. They were just kind of in between. And so Ken had the great, you know, ability not to fall out with anybody. Make sure everybody wants to work with you. So he was the guy that George Martin made sure he was there when the Beatles came and did their kind of audition. He was the guy who fixed Paul's amp to stop it buzzing, you know, or replace Paul's amp for the session. And he worked with all kinds of people. And he was the man who, who invented automatic double tracking, uh, which saved John John particularly from doing his vocals again and again. Uh, but he worked with all kinds of people and then subsequently became the kind of general manager of the place after a bit of a rocky period in the 70s. And he was the guy who kind of rescued the place in the early 80s when it was on the verge of being turned into a car park. But the key decision that Ken took was not just changing the toilet paper so that it no longer said EMI on it, 
but he was the person who, who said it's going to be called Abbey Road in future. Because before that, it had been EMI Recording Studios, or the technical department, as it was known within EMI. And he was the person who said, by then, mid-70s, well, it's known as Abbey Road. Mm. Of course, it was for reasons that seem seem all too plain now, but didn't particularly seem plain at the time. You know, I can remember I was living in London in the 70s and you could drive down Abbey Road and you would not be held up by a crocodile of Swiss tourists or whoever tried to take that impossible picture on the zebra. That stuff happened gradually later on. It probably happened after the death of John Lennon. But anyway, Ken was the person who said it's going to be called Abbey Road. And it's because of Ken's decision and, and the Beatles' decision to have their picture taken on Zebra, which is still the most amazing thing. Mm. We're going to call it Everest. We'll go up Everest. No, we won't. And anybody who's seen Get Back, which obviously everybody has, will know exactly how those conversations happened. We're going to go on a cruise. No, we're not. Mm. <laughs> those are the two things going on in the Beatles all the time. And uh, so we're going to go from the most ambitious sleeve design idea in the history of popular music to the least ambitious idea, which is we're going to go across that zebra three times, take six snaps, only one of which will be usable. And this will be our way of puncturing our own mystique. And look what happened. <laughs> look what happened. It is the most, forgive me, cliche alert, iconic album cover. It is the only one where you can go to the location and it effectively has not changed. Thanks to the conservatism of, of the locals, preservation orders, you can't move the zebra outside Abbey Road. It's the only listed zebra crossing in the UK. And, you know, if you sought to do anything with it that changed its status as that kind of icon, you'd have, um, you know, house, uh, questions in the house. You know, you, you really you really would. Because, you know, this is what happened later on when... Uh, you know, Universal ended up the owners of it, you know, when when they bought EMI. Or, and then there were, you know, first thing they had to say, first thing in the public statement, Abbey Road will remain. It's an icon of British creativity. It's really important. But that's partly because they can't do anything else with it. Because it's not like when uh, Guy Hans um, people came and bought EMI, the... You know, they looked at how, how, we, how we can we monetize Abbey Road? Can we turn it to flats? Oligarchs would love to have the address of Abbey Road. Of course, you can't do any of that because it's all got preservation orders absolutely all over it. And, you know, Chris Evans ran a campaign on Radio 2, didn't he? You got all the usual suspects, Richard Branson, all these people piling in. Meanwhile, every other recording studio in London has been ploughed under mm. and nobody's raised a squeak about any of it. But Abbey Roads is unique. It is genuinely unique. You know, when you say a studio to people, that's the only one they know. And so much of that is because of the Beatles. I was talking to the guy the other day who runs the shop in Abbey Road. Of course, they've got a you know, shop for tourists selling T-shirts and 
memorabilia and so forth. And he said 95% of the people who come here have no idea that it was ever recorded anybody other than the Beatles, which is remarkable, really. And I suppose this is part of the reason why Abbey Road wanted, wanted the book, is to make it clear that everybody from Paul Ropes and Sir Edward Elgar to Noel Coward to Glenn Miller to Eartha Kitt to, you know, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, George Formby, Gracie Fields, Johnny Kidd and the Pirates, the Beatles, and all those other Epstein acts, Pink Floyd, Procol Harum, Kate Bush, Amy Winehouse, everybody has been in there at one time or another. You know, that it's still there and it's still open for business, albeit probably a very different kind of business. Because um, as we've seen over the last 20 years, increasing number of records are made in the box, as they call it, which is effectively most records you're listening to have been made using the same technology that you use to do your taxes. Whereas a recording studio used to be a place where you did the mystical things that you couldn't do anywhere else. Mm. And so there was a sense of drama about going to it. You ask Paul McCartney or, you know, you ask any of those bands who went in there, you know, it was, oh, my God, this is so impressive. This is so intimidating. And we're going to start playing and those guys up there are going to sit in judgment on us as to whether we're good enough or not. And so, you know, people really had to come up to the mark. They had to do their best work and they had to do it in quite a short period of time. Whereas nowadays, a record is made, you know, I think Brian Eno called it the additive method of making records, which arrived in the 70s and has gathered pace ever since, which basically you start with one bit, and then you add another bit, and then another bit, and it's layered. And by the time you've got 10 layers, you decide actually layer one wants redoing because I'm not happy about the cowbell. So you kind of go back. And listen, brilliant records are made that way. Brilliant records are made all kinds of ways. Mm. And Abbey Road will accommodate all kinds of rec all kinds of uh, ways of making records. But a certain number of them still need the big space of the orchestra. And I've been in there when orchestras are recording in Studio One, and it's just an absolutely astonishing sound. Absolutely. Yeah, I think John Williams, the you know, the the film composer, talks about the bloom of the room. And it has something other than just the music. It has the sound of the room. And uh, they're setting quite a lot of store. There's the resurgence of what used to be called stereo and is now called spatial audio or whatever you want to call it. Mm. And intriguingly Quite a lot of the use of Studio One nowadays is recording orchestras with music for video games. The question of where the sound comes from in the sound picture is massively important. And people sit there and interact with these games in very much the way that my generation used to interact with copies of Dark Side of the Moon. You know, there is considerable business in that. There is also the mastering business since the the insane comeback of vinyl 
there's very little supply. The demand is absolutely huge. And so everybody wants to have their record mastered and to be able to say your record is mastered at Abbey Road, which is a service you can avail yourself of online. And so if you're a Seattle dentist who happens to fancy themselves as a jazz piano player and has made a record and you want it mastered at Abbey Road, you can do that. You pay for it. And you know you send you post your your files online, and somebody will master it, and they'll consult with you remotely because a lot of this is remote working. You know, mm. they've got a, a labs department there that is always working on new toys for the increasing number of people around the world who play at recording. They're not making a profit out of it; they're doing it because they love it. Either they're musicians or they fancy themselves remixing something. or They just like playing with their little studio at home. And they like to be able to have the latest gizmos from Abbey Road, you know. You can buy Abbey Road branded plugins for your Pro Tools and so forth, which effectively give you the very sound of the room. That's the idea. So they're marketing the air. <laughs> I think it's really interesting mm. because even though people use every toy, Pro Tools and all these things, they still like to feel that what they're doing is being done in the old way. Because mm. romantically, we're still really attached to the idea of a bunch of people in a room and then a red light going on and them starting, and at the end, somebody going, how was that? We really like that idea. Mm. Abbey Road's still the home of that, and it's probably the only home of it right now. And I think that's really interesting because there's always two things going on here. It's the realistic thing and the romantic thing, and it's how those two things work together absolutely fascinates me because it's not simply one thing and it's not simply the other. It's practical, but it's also romantic and kind of utopian. And uh, I, I went, I popped in when Noel Gallagher was in there when I, I spent a day there um, not long ago. And Noel Gallagher was in there and he's putting strings on um, on his new record. <laughs> I said, so why he's oh, I made the record, he's got a studio at home. They've all got a studio at home. Made most of the record there. I'll just come in here to do we're doing strings this morning, I think we're doing horns this afternoon, percussion tomorrow or something like that. I said, so why are you here? He said, oh, Well this is the work. This is the work And I think that's that's very true. He says, If I if I write songs, well it's just me on my own. If I do demos, it's me on my own. Once you've recorded something, the band rehearse it to get ready to, to play it live. But they don't do it any different, really. This is the work. It's me in the studio with the arranger and, and down there's a bunch of string players and there's the conductor and there's the engineer and we're doing something together. And, uh, you know, I think if we didn't know before... The COVID and working from home has reminded us all of the value of being together. And I think there are many great examples of that in the history of Abbey Road.
have been in the past and will be in the future. Well, what a fantastic way to end. Thanks so much for your time. The book is Abbey Road, the inside story of the world's most famous recording studio. Thanks so much. Thank you.